Well, good morning, Southwinds. It is so very good to see each and every one of you who are joining us here in our worship center. I also want to welcome those of you out in the lobby and across campus in the refinery and those who are watching with us online. Thank you so much for joining us as we are worshiping God together. Before uh, we get into our study of God's word today, I want to say a real quick word about what we anticipate is going to happen for us in the next week. It looks like we're going back to purple tier on Tuesday. We'll find out for sure one way or the other. But what that will mean is until that changes, we will not be able to gather inside. And so we just want you to know if that happens, what our plan is right now, um, we of course will need to go back to doing services recorded ahead of time so they can be Uh, distributed online, but we also are going to have an outdoor worship service at 10 a.m., weather permitting. So as long as we're able, as long as it's it's a nice, uh, beautiful day, uh, we're going to be gathering uh, as well outside, and you'll have that opportunity uh, to worship with us that way. So I want to encourage you just to keep um, checking our social media feeds uh, keep watching the, the emails and the, the texts that we send out to you. And just uh, be aware of what we're doing as we keep uh, navigating this uh, interesting season together. So uh, open your Bibles if you're not already there. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19 is where we are this morning. We're continuing in our Hope for Exile series. And I want to jump right in by reading our text uh, together. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Amen. Uh, Today, I want to begin by focusing your attention on one single word. It's actually the very first word that we read, that word, beloved. And it's a great word. It's a word that we might use when we're in a special relationship, when we're engaged, or when we're happily married, or maybe when we're heading towards a really big anniversary like Dana and I am next month. Beloved is a word about warmth and affection. In fact, the Greek word is defined as as speaking about a very special, particular kind of relationship. I, I wonder, as I'm thinking about this, how many of you parents Uh, This is a word which describes how you feel about your kids, beloved. I'm also wondering how many of you parents uh, are here today, and this word does not describe how you feel about your kids today. That's another sermon, actually. 
Uh, maybe we can think of it like this. How many of you are grandparents and you look at those grandbabies that you have in your life and you have deep affection and great delight in those babies, just like those two, beautiful, highly intelligent <laughs> grandbabies of mine. Uh, by the way, in case some of you don't, probably don't know yet, we have a third one coming, so you can look forward to more pictures being up there on the screen from time to time. But when you think of deep relationships like these, you think of this word, beloved. And Peter calls Christ followers beloved. He says we're beloved exiles. Beloved exiles. Now, you may remember Peter has called us beloved once before back in chapter 2, verse 11. And if you were to read on into his second letter, 2 Peter, you will see that he uses this word six more times. And in one of those occurrences, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter uses beloved to recall one of the most significant moments in human history. It's Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And you'll remember the story as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon the Son of God in the form of a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, and God says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Peter is telling us in his writings that Jesus is beloved, and Peter is saying, if we follow Jesus, we also are beloved. Now think about those two uses of the word. And here's what I want you to be thinking about as we go through uh, these verses today. When you look at Jesus' life and all that he suffers, does it look like Jesus is loved by God? No, it does not. Look at the Gospels. Jesus is hated, he's ignored, he's slandered. He's betrayed, he's denied, he's falsely accused and falsely tried, he's murdered. You would not look at Jesus' life and say, that looks like he's loved. But he was loved. And you also are loved, even when it doesn't feel like it. So much of 1 Peter is about suffering. We've seen it time and time again. This passage that we have just read is all about suffering. And so today we're going to be asking the question, well, how do we as beloved exiles follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the beloved, even when it doesn't feel like or look like we ourselves are beloved? How can we suffer as beloved exiles? You know, there is this tremendously powerful lie that so many of us believe that if you just do the right things, Good things will happen. I just have to ask you this morning, any of you uh, told that, that one by your mom? <laughs> I, I hate to tell you, but your mom lied to you. Now, she meant well, but it's just not true. And we know it's not true. Why? Because did Jesus do all the right things? Of course. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. Did things go well for Jesus? No. So it can't be true if you always do the right thing, things will go well for you. And Jesus himself told us that. Just one example, John 15, 18, Jesus said to his followers, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. So we are beloved by God just like Jesus, but we're also exiles living in a world where we don't belong, like Peter's been telling us, and we're gonna suffer so how do beloved exiles deal with the reality 
of suffering. I want to show you four truths this morning, four things you can apply in your life as you face suffering as beloved exiles. Number one, as beloved exiles, we expect suffering. This comes from verse 12 where Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I want you to notice three components of expecting suffering in this verse. And the first one is what we've been kind of already talking about. Uh, We remember our identity. We remember who we are in Christ when we suffer. We are beloved. And I just want to remind you today, you cannot be loved by God any more or any less, no matter what you do. See, God's love for you, the Bible teaches, is not predicated on your performance, but it's predicated on Jesus' performance. And so we can rest in that because Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. We can rest in that even when we suffer. And so whatever else we may find ourselves thinking about suffering, whatever else we may do about suffering as we seek to face it, it comes to us as beloved children of the Father. Amen? And then the second thing we see, learn not to be surprised when we suffer. Now, Peter tells us not to be surprised, but we're usually surprised, right? I mean, we find ourselves saying things like, I can't believe this is happening. Suffering feels so strange. And I I put it like this, learn to be surprised because all of us know we're not supposed to be surprised, right? You've heard this verse before. You've been told to expect suffering before, right? And yet when suffering comes, you still find yourself, what? Surprised. Why is this happening? I can't believe this is going on in my life. Why is God letting this occur? I don't understand. And here's what you need to know. When we feel surprised, we show that we have bought into the false idea that we should always be happy and comfortable and successful. But again, Peter's reminding us what Jesus has already told us, that this is just not true. Peter's reminding us what the Word of God has told us again and again and again, the opposite of that. The Word of God tells us to expect suffering, that there's nothing strange about fiery trials. And it's so easy for us to forget that we're in a spiritual battle, that once you follow Jesus, you become Satan's enemy. That's what it says in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil, The Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren, and Satan wants to hurt God, but he can't do that, so he goes after God's kids, and some of that is suffering. And Satan attacks in so many different ways. And we we suffer in this fallen world in, in different ways, like from sickness, like from relational breakdowns. Sometimes we just suffer because the world itself, creation itself is broken, and there are fires, and earthquakes and there are floods but but what you need to know as we go through this passage is that Peter is most specifically focused on right here is that suffering the kind of suffering that results from following Jesus sometimes we call it suffering for righteousness sake you'll notice that Peter speaks of the fiery trial and a lot of us I think read that and we assume that he's talking about horrible terrible things like people dying for their faith and and sometimes we read that and we wonder, does this really apply to us since we're not, we're not facing outright persecution in our culture, at least not yet. It's important for me to point out to you that 
Nero's physical persecution, all the terrible things you've heard described, uh, has not happened yet as Peter writes this and as these people read this. These people right now were mostly suffering because of what they would not do. They were mostly suffering because they wouldn't participate in the sins and in the idolatry that had been normalized in Roman culture. And as a result, what their suffering entailed was this. It was mostly mockery, slander, and notice the word in our passage is in verse 14, insults. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to be aware of because that's where the connection really to 2020 comes in for us. You know, our culture for decades now has been moving farther and, and farther away from any kind of biblical conception of reality. And it's becoming more and more apparent that if you don't go along with what everyone else believes, people don't respond well to that. And it surprises some people when they find out you're a Christian and you don't, you don't go along with what everyone else believes. It causes some people to ask questions. And then there are also some, it makes them angry. And so you may not be assaulted for following Jesus, but you may very well be insulted for following Jesus today. You know, in our day, in 2020, suffering for righteousness' sake can look like a lot of things. And maybe some of you experience one or more of these things. Maybe you, you lose out on a promotion because of your integrity. You won't do something that's dishonest. Maybe you're mocked at work or at school because you won't join in sin with others. Maybe you're shamed because of your view of the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb, or maybe you're shamed because of your view of marriage, what the Bible teaches about marriage. Some of you who are students, maybe you're shunned in high school or you're shunned at the university because you believe what the Bible says, that God created the universe you believe what the Bible says, that there is such a thing as sin and that there will be one day a judgment. You believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to true life. I've talked to some of you and you have had this experience. Maybe you're insulted by family members because you have become a Christ follower and, and your family has been in a different religious faith. You've converted to following Jesus out of a different religion. Now, I might add to all of this, we, we don't know where our culture is heading. And some of these things may become occasions for some of us to suffer true persecution sooner than we think. Just because we will not bow the knee to what our culture says is true or tolerant or on the right side of history. And I, I know that some of us don't want to see it. We're kind of living in denial, but there are so many troubling signs around us of leaders and, and politicians who are respecting freedom of religion less and less and less. And here's where I'm going with this. We need to decide right now that if the choice is for us to offend God or offend people by holding on to truth, then we offend people for the sake of truth. And we do that knowing that it is the truth that will ultimately set those people free. See, the people that Peter wrote to, they were in trouble, not because they did something wrong, but because they were doing what God says was right. And that's what could happen to us as well. Maybe you can think about it this way. Here's reality in this world you are going to get in trouble. 
In fact, why don't you just say that? I'm going to get in trouble. We're all going to get in trouble. The question is, who you'll get in trouble with and what will you get in trouble for? See, if you do what the world says, you will get in trouble with God. If you do what God says, you will get in trouble with the world. And each of us as Christ followers, we need to decide now who we'd rather get in trouble with. I'm so glad in recent weeks that we've had students with us um, in our worship services here in the worship center. And I just want to say a word to you as students. You need to be ready to enter a world where people will not like you because of your faith. And it's probably true that some of you have already made some destructive decisions in your life because you weren't ready to suffer. Maybe you've chosen some sin because of that. And I just want to encourage you to, with all of us, resolve right now, if we haven't resolved already, to choose to follow Jesus. Resolve right now, like I told you last week, that it's better to suffer than to sin. That's the second thing. We need to learn not to be surprised. We should expect suffering. Third, we can expect suffering when we see the purpose in our suffering. This is so important. Peter says that that fiery trials come to test us. Now, the the Greek word for test is pronounced purosis, and it's where we get words like pure or purify. And it speaks of what happens when metals are refined by fire. And, And just like metals get refined by fire, the heat of suffering refines us, tests us, purifies us, makes us more like Jesus. This reminds us that our suffering is never random. Doesn't it feel random when it happens? The word of God tells you it's not random. It's never random. God is always at work, and we may not like it, but the truth is, the truth is, we grow more in struggle than we do in success. Anybody want to give a witness to that? We know it's true. We grow more like Jesus when we struggle than when we're successful. And I think, you know, we need to recognize that part of why suffering is so hard for us is we've gotten used to a comfortable Christianity, a faith that costs us nothing, but the Bible tells us something very, very different. I was just thinking this week as I was studying this passage and reading other passages, and I hope you can kind of relate to this. How many times do we read verses like I'm about to read to you, and we just kind of go floating over them? We never think that they could apply to us. We, we kind of uh, set them aside. They must mean something else. We miss out on what God's teaching us. Here's one example. Philippians 1.29, Paul writes, For it has been granted to you. And by the way, that's language that tells you God is doing something. Only God grants stuff in the Bible. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. God It's his will that we suffer sometimes. The Bible promises that. There's a purpose in it. Jesus says this, John 15, 20, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Do you think this applies to you? And if it never does apply to you, what might that tell you about how you live your faith? See, persecution of Christians for their faith is a reality in this world. Do you know this? I looked it up this week. 260 
million Christians. That's one in nine Christians right now are suffering severe persecution around the world today. 260 million. Before this day is up, eight Christians somewhere will die for their faith. Before this week is up, somewhere around the world, 182 churches will be attacked. Every month, the stats tell us, 309 Christians are imprisoned unjustly. See, the Bible is true. The Bible speaks of reality. And we may, by God's providence and grace and mercy, never face this level of persecution. But we may, and we should be ready for it. We should, in our lives, expect suffering. God's word tells us to do that. Here's the second thing we should do as beloved exiles. We rejoice in suffering. In verses 13 and 14, it says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter says, don't be surprised, but rejoice. But how can we rejoice? I want you to think about it this way. Why do we respond to anything with joy? When we have joy, what causes it? Well, here's the basic way I think you can understand it. We have joy whenever we receive something that we perceive as gain. Does that make sense? You get something, it's a good thing, it's gain to you, you have joy. And here's the deal. The world looks at Christ followers and sees us suffer and how we handle suffering, and it looks really, really strange to them because they perceive suffering as loss. It really looks like loss, but we rejoice because we know, this is what Peter's saying, we know it's gain. We're rejoicing in what we've gained, not lamenting what we've lost. Suffering shouldn't drain our joy away as if we're losing the things we love in suffering, but we're actually gaining something in suffering that creates joy. So what is that? We rejoice because we understand that the blowback we get, the insults we experience, the relationships we lose, maybe the jobs we lose, we know we're gaining something. Something is happening. And Peter shows us three things, three things that we gain and that cause us to joy in these, to rejoice in these two verses. Here's the first one. He says, rejoice that you share in Christ's suffering. What do you gain from that? Here's what you gain. Suffering shows me that I'm united to Christ. Suffering shows me that I'm united to Christ. How do I know that? Well, it's because I'm suffering like he did. I'm living the way he lived. Martin Luther, the reformer, used this analogy. It was the analogy of a wedding. He says, when you're joined to someone else in marriage, their debts become your debts. And for some of you, that wasn't a great thing, right? (laughs) But if they're richer than you, their riches become your riches. 
Your debts get paid and you get their riches. He said, that's what marriage to Christ is like. And think about it. What does the Bible tell us? Jesus, God's son, paid our debt of sin on the cross. It's forgiven. It's wiped away. We receive the riches of his life, his resurrection life, his eternal life. We get the riches of his righteousness. We are united to him forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. That is eternal gain, which should cause you to rejoice. And you know you have those things when you suffer. That's what Peter's telling us. See, the rest of the world looks at what we go through, and it looks like loss to them. But we say, it can't be loss if I have Jesus. It just shows me I'm united to Jesus. And, And that also means that we receive Jesus' reproach. This is exactly what Jesus promised us the world, the way the world treats Jesus, treated Jesus, is the way the world will treat us. We should rejoice that we're being treated like Jesus. See, when you stand for Jesus and you stand for his truth and you are insulted, you rejoice knowing they're treating me like they treated Jesus. That means I must belong to Jesus. Amen? You can rejoice in suffering. Secondly, rejoice that you share in Christ's glory. So you not only rejoice in what you have now in Jesus, that you belong to him, but you rejoice that this is not what forever will look like. Is anybody glad that 2020 is almost over? Like, is there anybody here who wants to do this year again? No, we don't. Is anybody glad that what we experience in this world will not last forever? No matter the blessings we have in Christ and the goodness we experience in this world, we're glad that there is something far, 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 far greater beyond this world. Amen? And and that's what we're talking about here. We we rejoice uh, that this is not what forever is going to be like. We rejoice that just like Jesus had suffering and then Jesus had glory, so too will we. See, our suffering one day is going to give way to the glory that is to be revealed. The Bible says there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, when there will be no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sadness. We will see Jesus Glory is coming, so we rejoice in that. And it's an amazing thing. It's so amazing that you are called to rejoice now in something that you will have one day. And this is because you're united to Christ. Because you're united to him, the future is so sure for you, you can celebrate it now, today. So how do we do that See, the reason we struggle with doing that is that we're, we're so often tied to the here and now that we cannot see beyond today. We think that what is happening now is all there is. It's all we think about. John Newton, who you may not know by name, but you know his song, Amazing Grace. He's the author of that song. He was a pastor, and in one of his sermons, he once gave this analogy. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, And his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands 
and blubbering out all the remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Now that's kind of an old illustration, right? Let me modernize it, bring it up to date uh, by talking not about a carriage, but a car. I have to put it this way. Has anybody ever had a terrible, terrible car? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's always breaking down. It's the kind of car your parents gave you when they were, you were a teenager because they didn't really love you. That's what you thought, right? <laughs> Let, let's just say you drove a Yugo. Some of you don't even remember Yugos. When I was younger, that was the car that was just the most terrible thing. It came from another country. You can figure it out. It was the kind of car that couldn't even get to 60. It was the kind of car that smoked when you stopped at a light. It was so humiliating you know, your car is smoking out everybody around you. Has anybody ever been there, ever had that experience in your life? You know, you have that kind of a car. You know, the, the, the car can't do anything. You just drive it around town because it's not safe to go anywhere else. Now, let's say that's what you have. You have a Yugo. Or how about this one from my own past? Anybody ever have a Ford Pinto? <laughs> now I'm talking to some people. You know, you get what I'm talking about right now. I mean, it's just... Not a good car. And, and let's say you're, you're, you're a driver of that car, and one day you get a certified letter from an attorney's office. It's a law firm, and, and you open the letter, and you read that in this letter that you are going to inherit $1 billion. And so the day comes, and you got to drive to the attorney's office to sign the paperwork to inherit your $1 billion, and you're driving your Yugo or your Pinto or whatever other cruddy car you used to drive. You're driving that to the attorney's office, and one mile, one mile from getting to the attorney's office, you get a flat tire. Now, are you going to get out of your car, sit down on the curb, and weep because you have a flat tire? Of course not. Uh, of course not. I, I read this week about a special model Ferrari that costs $1.4 million, that goes from zero to 60 in less than three seconds, that goes from zero to 120 in seven seconds. You wait a little bit longer, this car gets up to about 10 seconds, 217 miles an hour. If you're gonna inherit a billion dollars, you could buy like 1,000 Ferraris at that price, right? You could get anything you want. Why, why would you sit on the side of the road weeping because of a flat tire? Jesus is, or Peter is telling us that the glory to be revealed is far, far greater than we can fathom. And we know about that glory when we suffer and when we rejoice in those sufferings. Third, rejoice that you share in the Spirit's blessing. Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, again, as I said earlier, this word insulted tells us that the persecution that these people were mainly facing was primarily verbal at this time. Um, it, it wasn't about being burned to the stake or something like that. Believers were primarily being targeted at the vocal level. They were receiving verbal assaults, slander, uh, things like that. And Peter is saying to them that this kind of persecution is proof of their blessedness. Receiving insults, someone insults you because you follow Christ, it's actually a blessing because it's a sign 
that you really belong to Jesus. See, being Christ-like often means being treated like Christ. And the Holy Spirit responds to that. That's what Peter's telling us. During times we're harassed, the Spirit blesses us with power to endure. During times we're insulted, the Spirit blesses us with the beauty of Jesus' presence with us in our suffering. And again, suffering may seem like loss to the world. But when you're a beloved exile and when you choose to rejoice in suffering, it is incredible gain. He goes on to say that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in your suffering, in your slander, in your sorrow. And, and you've heard me say this before. This word glory in its root meaning literally uh, speaks of heaviness or, or weightiness. And what he's saying is this, as life burdens you and you suffer, it's like weight pressing down on you. He said it's like the spirit of God empowers, pushes back with even greater strength. And sometimes we suffer and our suffering feels so heavy that we think it's going to bury us. But Peter says, no, the spirit of God is heavier and he will lift me. I mean, think about it. How many of you have been through what seems like hell? in your life at some point, and you know that the Spirit of God sustained you during that season in a way that was supernatural, in a way that was inexplicable, in a way that honestly at the beginning of your, your journey through that you would have never thought possible. This is why the children of God who undergo the worst suffering and the worst slander and the worst sorrow, those are the the, the Christians who experience the greatest presence and power of the Spirit of God. This is why, and some of you would agree with this, after they go through it on the other side of all of their suffering, they say, it is the worst thing that I have ever been through, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because I met God in a new and fresh way. And I know that I know that I know that I am the beloved of God you see, this is the hope of all Christ followers, and this is why we can rejoice in suffering. Amen? Here's the third truth. As beloved exiles, we re-examine our lives. Verses 15 and 16 say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter, in general terms, says that when we suffer, we should ask ourselves, why? Why do we suffer? And he first of all says, don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Make sure you're not suffering for the wrong reasons. And, and this list is very interesting. Maybe you thought about it as we read through it. The first three things are very obvious. You know, people who murder or steal or they're just evil people, they deserve to suffer, right? We all get that. But then there's that fourth example, meddler. And doesn't it kind of seem out of place? You know, murder, theft, evil doing, meddler. Some commentators say that this is so unusual that maybe this is exactly Peter's main point, the thing that he's most focusing on. It's kind of interesting because this word uh, that Peter uses appears in Greek literature for the very first time ever. It's very possible, a lot of scholars think Peter coined this word. It is a compound word, it's a very long word. It's pronounced allotri episkopos. And it is two words put together. It comes from allotrios, which means belonging to another, 
and episkopos, which means overseer or bishop. It's one of the Greek words in the New Testament for pastor. And the idea is something like someone who interferes in someone else's business or busybody. It's like this. It's it's like someone who, you know, shares their opinion regularly when no one ever asks. How many of you know someone like this? I mean, you don't do this, but you know some other people that this is kind of their problem, right? They're, they're sharing their opinion all the time. And, and scholars are wondering as they read this, maybe there were some Christians Peter was writing to back then, and they were, they were kind of overzealous, and they were regularly crossing cultural limits with unbelievers. Maybe they were interfering in family affairs. Maybe they were sharing their faith in an obnoxious excessive way maybe they were coming out and attacking pagan habits you know you know criticizing pagans for you know living like pagans you might interpret this avoid annoying other people you might say Peter's telling people don't be argumentative ranting about everything you might say that Peter is telling some of you you should get off Facebook right or you could put it this way Suffer for righteousness, not self-righteousness. Peter says, don't suffer for the wrong reasons. But then in verse 16, he says, suffer for the right reasons. And I would phrase it this way. He says, don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. And this could mean a number of things. It begins by not being ashamed to be labeled a Christian. And I don't know if you know this, but this word Christian occurs only three times in the New Testament. It's not the most common word to describe who we are, even though for us it is the most common word. It occurs here and two times in the book of Acts. Maybe you've heard before that when it was first used, it was an insult. It was kind of on the level of someone saying to you, oh, you think you're little Jesus. That's kind of how it was used at first. And over the centuries, we come down to our nation's history, uh, most of the time that most of us have been around, to be called a Christian is generally a positive thing, right? But has anybody else noticed that that's changing? That more and more the word Christian itself is being used in a negative way in our culture. And so one of the ways that we can uh, shame Christ is if we try to downplay who we are. Another one of the ways that we can shame Christ is if we deny clear teachings of Scripture that are unpopular in our dominant culture. But we glorify Christ. We're not ashamed of Christ when we boldly follow him, even if it causes us to suffer. We glorify Christ when we suffer, and we do so joyfully. And we glorify him because when we suffer and suffer joyfully, we are showing that Christ is more valuable to us than anything. You understand that this is just a true fact, a reality of life, that you will suffer for what you love. I, you know, maybe the best example I could think of is just to ask um, any of the moms here, would you be willing to die for your kids? And all of you are going to raise your hand immediately. It's like, yes, no hesitation. Why? Because you love them. When you suffer for what you love, you glorify that thing that you love. When you suffer for Jesus, you glorify Jesus. You show how valuable he is to you, that he is more valuable to you than your comfort, more valuable to you than your possessions, more valuable to you than anything. 
if you're willing to suffer for him. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Verses 17 and 18 say, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Put simply, this is telling us that God expects Christians to live differently than people who don't know Jesus. If you have the Spirit of God, God holds you to a higher standard than he he does the one who does not yet have the life of Jesus within him. And so we should examine our lives. This word for judgment here doesn't mean condemnation. It's rather about evaluation that God sends the refining fire of judgment to judge us within the church first. And then it moves outward to those outside the church. In other words, as Peter has been telling us, God uses suffering to test us, refine us, to purify us. And so we re-examine our lives. We allow God to work. Then finally, fourth, as beloved exiles, we keep trusting our faithful God. Verse 19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. A couple of things to note here. Peter says, suffer according to God's will. It just reminds us that this kind of fiery trial is designed by God for our good. And therefore, we should expect that we may very well suffer for doing good. And when that happens, what do we do? Peter says, entrust yourselves to your faithful creator. That that Greek word for entrust is a banking term that means to deposit something valuable for safekeeping. And so when we suffer, we can deposit ourselves into God's safekeeping, knowing that we're completely safe with him. We entrust our valuable life to the one who gave us life because he is worthy of our trust. Peter also, by calling God creator, is emphasizing God's total sovereignty over the lives of his people, over everything we face, including our suffering. And that also reminds us why we can keep trusting our God. Because we know God's in control. And we know God is faithful to his promises. We know that God will never leave us or forsake us even in our suffering. We know that one day God will raise us up to glory and we will live with Christ forever. We know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him for his glory. We know that God never wastes a trial in our lives. But he always uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus. And so therefore we can trust him. We can trust him. Friends, Southwinds, we are beloved exiles. And so we can expect the suffering that God promises his people, knowing that we are God's children, knowing that God loves us more than we can know. Therefore, we can rejoice in suffering, knowing that our suffering demonstrates that we are in Christ, that we belong to him. We can be glad because our suffering shows us that we're actually blessed, that the spirit of God is with us, present in power in the midst of our circumstances. And we may not be glad in our circumstances, but we are glad in the God who calls us beloved, who shows that we're beloved, who proves that we're beloved as we go through suffering with him. You are beloved children of God. And whatever happens in your life, whatever you're going through, the spirit of God is with you in greater power and greater glory.
And because you know that you are beloved, you can make it through. Whatever you face, whatever the fiery trials that are particular to your life may be, no matter what happens in your life, in this country, even around the world, we can live and we can rejoice knowing that Jesus will always be with us and the Holy Spirit will always empower us with joy, joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And all God's people together said, amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads, please?